Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to this conversation about a book titled Choke Point Capitalism, how big tech and big content captured creative labor markets and how we'll win them back. Um, Out in the US under Beacon in 2022, in the UK under Scribe, this book is written by two Um, wonderful authors, one of whom we are very lucky to have with us today. So the book is written by Dr. Rebecca Giblin and Corey Doctorow. And we have Corey with us today to tell us all about what is choke point capitalism and how can we overcome it. So Corey, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Could you please start us off by introducing yourself and Rebecca a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book together? Sure. Well, I'm a, I'm an author. I've written more than 20 books, um, mostly science fiction, some for kids, some for adults, even a little picture book for, for Litley's. Uh, also nonfiction uh, on tech subjects. I'm a, a tech activist. I've been with the Electronic Frontier Foundation for 20 years. That's a nonprofit in San Francisco. I also help found the Open Rights Group here in the UK. Uh, and I'm a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University and a visiting professor of library science at the University of North Carolina. And it's in those capacities that I have been involved in what could loosely be called the copyright wars, which is how I came to know Rebecca. So Rebecca's a campaigning law professor at the University of Melbourne. And Rebecca and I have both been laboring in the copyright mines for, for some decades. And both of us had become very sick of what we thought of as a false dichotomy whereby you had to choose in the copyright wars whether you were on team content or team tech, and you had to root for one of those giants to come out on top in this epic struggle in the expectation that if they if they did win, that that giant would be the one that would dribble a few more crumbs for people who work in the creative arts, uh, and the other one would be vanquished. And we thought that team tech and and team entertainment to the extent that either of those uh, firms behaved well in regard to the creative laborers who provided the work that made up their their profits, uh, it was determined not by copyright nor by any kind of intrinsic virtue to these firms, but rather by the structure of the industry, that if they could treat you badly, they would because they are value-maximizing, shareholder-oriented monopolists, and that's what those firms do. And that copyright was not a good instrument for unwinding the market concentration that had produced uh, four giant movie studios, three giant record labels that own the three giant music publishers, one giant ebook store, four, five giant publishers, now soon to be four, depending on the uh, uh, trajectory of a lawsuit in the United States, uh, and so on and so on. That w- Where these firms had choke points, choke points that they could use to extract whatever copyright Congress or Parliament had given you to bargain with, 
um, they would use those choke points to just take away that stuff unilaterally. We, we analogize it in the book to having a, a kid who gets bullied at school for their lunch money. You can't really solve that by giving that kid more lunch money. And if the bullies go out and campaign for lunch money for hungry school kids, you should look askance at them because they are not good actors and they are not briefing for kids. They're briefing for themselves. So that obviously already gives us some taste of kind of what you mean in the title of the book by choke point capitalism. But I'm wondering if you can explain it a little bit more, maybe with an example, and also how we got to this place. Sure. Well, let's start with how we got here. So when I started in publishing uh, about 25, 30 years ago, and I started sending magazine stories out, um, there were 20 plus big publishers in New York, uh, all of about the same size, and then dozens and dozens more that were smaller uh, boutique houses. And um, what happened in the years that followed is that all of those firms gobbled each other up. They, they bought one another and merged. This is a pattern that took place in lots of industries. And it didn't happen because, you know, the moon was in Venus or the great forces of history were bearing down on the moment. It happened because of a policy change. Uh, Ronald Reagan and his neoliberal colleagues around the world, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Brian Mulroney in Canada, where I'm from, they all had a, a, a sharp reversal in antitrust policy starting in the late 70s or in early 1980s. And they went from a posture of intrinsic suspicion of large firms and a presumption that firms sh shouldn't be allowed to merge with major rivals or buy up nascent firms before they could grow to become major rivals to a new presumption that monopolies were mostly great, that monopolies were efficient, and that among us lurked these incredible once-in-a-generation genetic sports who, if they were only given free reign, would produce these incredible dividends for all of us. Uh, new productivity, new products, new imagination. You know, just let little Jeffy Bezos have his way, and the next thing you know, we'll all get overnight delivery. And whatever consequences we pay on the on the way, you know, maimed warehouse workers or jars for, full of urine in the uh, in the delivery vans, they're a small price to pay for what would ultimately be a great uh, outcome. You know, better that a, a thousand uh, guilty monopolies should go free than an innocent monopoly should be strangled by an overreaching government bureaucrat. And so, for forty years, we have allowed firms to buy each other up to merge with one another and to engage in, in predatory conduct. So, uh, um, for example, you can think of how Uber used its investors' money, mostly uh, some tens of billions funneled through SoftBank, uh, but uh, originating with the Saudi royal family, to subsidize the cost of car rides, which was great for riders when, when this was all starting, because they were losing 41 cents on every dollar they earned in this subsidy. But it meant that all of the other cab firms, all the private hire firms, uh, basically went out of business. And it also meant that it was uh, it was impossible to drum up support for public transit because the rides were so cheap that most people were willing and happy to take a private car rather than a bus or, or a tube or, or a tram. And, you know, it was only when the party ended, when when they had driven all these firms out of business, that they were able to put the screws to drivers and, and also to riders, which is why driver wages are going down and rider costs are going up everywhere. And that's an example of a choke point. Um, you have this choke point where you have drivers who want to drive and riders who want to ride. And you have this rent seeker in the middle, a large firm that dominates its industry. And in order for those two people to transact with one another, they must pass through a choke point and give money to this firm in the middle 
that wants to make up this $35 billion hole it's dug for itself by gouging us on either side of it. You always pay in the end for the choke point. And those choke points have been constructed by all kinds of entertainment companies, and they've been used, and also tech companies. You know, it wasn't an accident that the web was converted to five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. It was it was runaway acquisitions. Google is a company that really only ever made three successful products. They made a really good search engine, a pretty good Hotmail clone, and a browser that for all of its benefits is also incredibly invasive and surveillant. Every other product Google made in-house crashed and burned, and every product they've had that's a success they bought from someone else, whether that's Android or YouTube, their entire ad tech stack, their server management tools, and so on and so on. So it was mergers that allowed these firms to get big. And as they got big, they no longer needed to compete with each other, either within a sector. So, you know, Google and Facebook can both converge on a set of terms that are bad for the performers that fill up Instagram and YouTube, uh, nor intersectorally. So Google and the big three record labels are able to converge on a set of terms that are equally bad for the performers that uh, rely on their platforms. And, you know, the, uh, the extraordinary length, scope, duration, uh, uh, statutory damages and so on of copyright has been a gift to whatever of these firms could gobble up as many copyrights as possible through their choke points. And it allows them to set up the more choke points into the future that let them structure their industry's future and the future of their industry's future. So when Spotify was getting off the ground, it knew that it had to do a deal with the big three record labels. The big three record labels control 70% of the recording rights and 60% of the composition rights of all the music in the world. And the way that they got it was not by investing in music, but rather by gobbling up smaller firms at fire sale prices as their dominance uh, grew and as those firms found themselves in economic distress. So to get uh, Warner, Universal, and Sony on side, Spotify had to agree to give large shares of its equity to those three companies. They became its business partners. Now, as business partners, they had a strangely conflicted um, arrangement with Spotify because on the one hand, they were representing the musicians who, uh, whose streams were being played on Spotify. On the other hand, they were representing their shareholders who owned a piece of Spotify. The more money they took in on behalf of their musicians, the less money was left over to pay to their shareholders. And so the big three record labels negotiated an incredible deal where the um, uh, Spotify would pay very, very, very low amounts for access to uh, copyrighted works, for access to those streams. But they would guarantee the three large record labels a monthly minimum spend. And what that meant was after all of the streams were totted up for Sony or BMG or Universal, there were still millions left over that Spotify had remitted to them that they didn't have to give to any artist. They could give it to some of the artists, none of the artists, all of the artists, all at their discretion. That also allowed them to show that Spotify had a very profitable business because it paid very little for the streams that it had. And of course, they had negotiated most favored nation status. So none of the 30% of independent labels and, and independent musicians who are not captured by the big three, they couldn't charge Spotify any more than the big three were paying, but they didn't get those minimum monthly guarantees. They didn't get free advertising or pride of placement or what have you. So the record labels basically ended up constructing a new choke point out of their existing choke point with Spotify. And when Spotify went public, the shares that they had rocketed and increased in value by billions of dollars because investors looked at Spotify's fundamentals and said, look at how cheap the streams that they get are. Surely this company is going to be very profitable if their inputs are this cheap.
that's a really uh, useful example to explaining kind of how this works, as you said, both now and in the future. Um, and of course, the book goes into explaining that in other sectors of the creative industry as well, um, that we probably won't get into in the interests of time, uh, because I want to move to the second half of the book. Um, the first half does what you've just done, uh, outlines the problem, how we got here, how does this work in a number of different places. Um, but the second half of the book looks at how we can get out of this, what the solutions are. And so before we get into some of the particular things that the both of you point to, I was wondering if you could tell us how you came up with the solutions in this second half of the book. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, the, the the first half of the book shows how all of these Baroque scams work, as you say, and they are very Baroque. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. We try to do our best to channel John Oliver as we unwind these, these sort of eye-glazing uh, accounting tricks, but they are very complicated, and they're not uh, complicated for any good reason. They're complicated just to obscure them. You know, some things are hard to understand because they're complicated, but some things are made hard to, are, are made complicated, so they'll be hard to understand. That is a lesson I think a lot of us learned in uh, 2008 with the great financial crisis when we finally figured out what a collateralized debt obligation actually was. And we were like, wait, I assumed that this must be something real because it was so complicated. But now that you've explained it to me, holy moly, what were we doing? <laughs> so uh, we, we, we looked at these, these um, uh, strange, complicated accounting frauds, and we came to realize that there was no solution to them for individuals to undertake. That uh, as the punchline from the old joke goes, if you wanted to get there, I wouldn't start from here. That you as an individual weren't going to shop your way out of monopoly capitalism anywhere, any more than you as an individual are going to recycle your way out of the climate emergency. That we needed systemic solutions. And systemic solutions, you know, they're, they're a bit of a... Um, uh, a problem because even as detailed and as technical and shovel ready as the systemic solutions we offer are, it's it's not obvious how you put them into practice. I mean, unless you're a regulator or a lawmaker or maybe an arts organization or a political party, it's hard to know how these systemic solutions can come into being. But we realized that one motif of our decades in the copyright wars has been that periodically these manifestly unfair arrangements whether they're undertaken by tech firms or entertainment firms or in collusion between the two sectors, these manifestly unfair arrangements do reach these crises points. And when the crisis points arrive, you get a, a kind of grasping about for a solution. And oftentimes that solution is no solution at all. It's something that just makes it worse. Uh, the great security expert Bruce Schneier has identified something he calls the security syllogism, which goes, something must be done. All right, there, I've done something. And, and without any regard to whether the thing you've done has any bearing on the thing that you're worried about. So, for example, in 2019, I was very involved in a European fight over mandatory copyright filters for online for all online platforms, including, for example, the one that you downloaded this podcast from if you're listening to it right now. And the proposal was and is that if you're going to host content that is generated by the public, you have to implement a copyright filter that screens that content against a database of known copyrighted works and blocks it in the event that it appears to be an infringement. Well, these filters are incredibly expensive to build. Uh, the closest we have to an existing example is the one that YouTube uses, Content ID. That has cost over $100 million to build and maintain over a decade. And it's only at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to complying with this copyright directive issue from 2019. And we knew that that meant that we were going to end up in a world in which um, 
uh, only a small number of firms could compete with each other to give creators a better deal. And that the lack of competition meant that it was on the one hand, very hard to get a good deal as a creator. And on the other hand, very hard to reform the firm's conduct because when they're that big, they're both too big to fail and too big to jail. And we saw that this was eventually gonna rebound to creators detriment, both by removing competitors from the marketplace and also by creating these filters that could be abused. You know, For example, if you play classical music on a piano, say, and upload it to YouTube in order to earn part of your living, as lots of classical pianists do, and as even more did during the pandemic when they couldn't go out and perform in live venues, you will usually find that those piano performances of yours that are performances of public domain, hundreds year old classical compositions are nevertheless claimed by Sony Music, which owns the rights to the majority of performances of classical music, the filter that Google operates really can't tell the difference. And Sony, either out of indifference or greed, or maybe both, frequently when it's, when, when, uh, its misclaims are brought to its attention, when someone who has performed a, a classical composition for their YouTube stream has it flagged as a, as a Sony recording and has their advertising money diverted to Sony in a form of wage theft, um, Sony uh, disputes it. They say, no, 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 this is our recording. Either, again, as I say, because they're too lazy or because it benefits them, or maybe the reason they're so lazy is because they know that if they do this, it benefits them. So it's a form of wage theft enabled by these filters. And we thought, you know, there are going to be more of these crises, including a crisis involving this filter, because that is now the law of the land in Europe. The Digital Single Markets Directive passed uh, by an incredibly narrow vote. Um, This uh, measure carried by five votes and afterwards 10 MEPs said that they got confused and pressed the wrong button. But uh, even though their votes were changed in the final recording, the measure itself carried through due to a strange rule about how European uh, Union votes work. So when that crisis arises, we wanted to have some ideas lying around. Uh, Ideas lying around is a notion that comes from one of of the people I think of as my great historic arch enemies, a guy named Milton Friedman, who was one of the architects of neoliberalism. And before neoliberalism came to the fore, before the Thatcher and the Reagan era, Milton Friedman was a fringe figure, as were his colleagues at the University of Chicago School of Economics. But Friedman thought that there would be crises on the horizon. And if they were to promote these ideas that weren't in the mainstream uh, and promote them sufficiently, that when the crisis arose, these ideas lying around would move from the fringe to the core. And that's exactly what happened. So we wanted to make some ideas lying around of our own. And the ideas lying around that we built are, as I say, shovel-ready technical answers to how we resolve these choke points, to how we widen them out and give creators more bargaining power. And if you'd like, I could give you an example of one or two of them. Sure. I mean, I'm probably going to ask you about a number of them. Um, but oh, what okay. examples? Well, why don't we move on to that then? <laughs> sure. Um, so the first place I'd love to start, obviously, is um, all this talk about monopolies kind of naturally uh, lends one to think about antitrust laws. And clearly, they're not really doing what they say on the tin. And you've explained a bit kind of why that is. So is there a way that they can be improved? Oh, there can be and there is. I I think we're seeing uh, enormous uh, energy for antitrust enforcement. The Competition and Markets Authority here in the UK blocked Facebook's uh, acquisition of Giphy. We're seeing more merger scrutiny in the US. We're seeing enforcement actions. Um, Even the Chinese Cyberspace Directive has uh, lots of antitrust stuff for Chinese big tech firms, which kind of puts the lie to the uh, claims of people like uh, Nick Clegg, who's now, you know, making millions of pounds a year shilling for Facebook, 
who says that if we if we don't let Facebook have uh, uh, the run of, of European cyberspace, that it will be overrun by Chinese firms serving Chinese interests. The Chinese government clearly doesn't believe this. They think these big tech firms are um, actually adverse to their own political interests. Um, but it, it should be noted that as important as antitrust laws are to addressing monopoly, they're they're not as good at addressing at addressing monopsony, because monopsony effects kick in at much lower degrees of concentration than monopoly. If a buyer controls as little as eight or ten percent of a market, they can shape that whole market. This is something that's well understood in the literature, and so we need not just the conduct remedies that we use in, in monopoly enforcement, where we tell firms what they can and can't do, nor the structural remedies where they where we tell them how they can and can't merge. We also need some very specific remedies about addressing and directly regulating buyer power and ensuring that the contracts that uh, emerge from those uh, bargains are uh, fair and don't uh, magnify the imbalances and, and enshrine them and make them worse. And what about laws beyond technical antitrust laws as a sort of category of law, what other sort of parts of the legislative system or regulations um, could help alleviate these choke points? Yeah, well, we put a lot of energy into contract law in our book. Um, Contracts are one of the areas in which we see the most mischief being done to creators' livelihoods. So for example, if you uh, are are entitled to royalties from your work, whether that's games or music or videos or, or text, books, uh, the, the publisher, the studio, the label that pays you those royalties probably uh, permits you to audit its books. That's that's standard in most contracts. Those audits are expensive. Not all artists get around to doing them, but arts organizations do random audits on behalf of their members. And artists who are really sure that they're being ripped off and who have the wherewithal will often audit the books of the, the people who owe them royalties. Excuse me one second. Sorry. Um, and so... Uh, when, when you go and you audit your books, when you go and you audit the, the money that you're due, you will often find that the publisher, the label, the studio, they owe you some money. Um, we cite one uh, firm in our book uh, that does, <clears throat> excuse me, we cite a firm in our book that audits uh, record label contracts and the royalties owed, owed to performing artists. And in the tens of thousands of audits they've done over decades, only in one instance was there an error in favor of the artist. In every other instance, the error was in favor of the label. Uh, we don't have any explanation for this. We assume it's some kind of bizarre localized probability storm. And we certainly have a lot of sympathy for the accountants of the labels who have to contend with this very weird thing where every time they flip a coin, it lands on edge. But in any event, if when you find that money that is owed to you, and we, we cite one source who, who had a six-figure discrepancy in their favor, and you demand that they pay you the money they've stolen, they will generally say, you're adorable, but you're mistaken. You just don't understand maths. Um, We don't owe you any money, but because we're so generous and we don't want any ill will between us, we'll offer you a settlement, a a discount on on what you think we owe you. And all you need to do is sign a non-disclosure agreement and promise that your auditor will never audit us again. This is like the murderer getting to tell the forensics team where they can dig in their own garden. You know, all of my garden is up to you to dig for that uh, missing body, except for that corner down at the bottom left. That's one I'm very sentimental about. You you have to steer clear there. Um, That non-disclosure means that when you find money that that has been stolen from you and you want to go and tell the other people who are situated the same as you where the money that's been stolen from them is hidden, you can't. 
you can't without facing significant uh, contractual penalties. Now, these contracts are all consummated, almost without exception, in four American states. There's California, New York, of course, and then there's uh, Washington State, home of Amazon and a bunch of game studios. And then there's Tennessee, which is home uh, to Nashville. Now, contract is a, a, a creature of state law. And if we were to reform the state laws in those four states, this is the easiest kind of law to fix with short bills that said as a matter of public policy, non-disclosure cannot be enforced where it pertains to material omissions or misstatements in royalty statements that redound to the detriment of creative workers, then we could at the stroke of a pen put more money in the pockets of more creators than all the copyright term extensions of the last 40 years combined. This is a, a crack in the machine where if you stick a crowbar in and wiggle it around, money pours out of the system and into the pockets of creators, and it really has nothing to do with copyright. So does that mean we don't look at copyright? Has that been a red herring all along? Or are there ways to have copyright help as well? No, of course, there, there are lots of ways that you can fix copyright too. So, so for example, rather than making copyright last longer, which just benefits whoever can appropriate the copyright, we could make copyright revert faster. Uh, when the first American copyright law was made, uh, it only endured for 14 years. And then uh, the creator, the, the author of the work, had to go and renew its copyright, which meant that the publisher, practically speaking, if they wanted to keep the work in print, needed to convince the creator to go down to the copyright office and file some paperwork. And that was a moment at which the creator, who had had very little bargaining leverage when their book was an unknown quantity, could exert more bargaining leverage as a condition of that renewal. In the 1976 Copyright Act, the U.S. Congress originally considered a proposal to automatically revert copyrights after 25 years, irrespective of the contractual arrangement. You could sign away your copyright for the whole duration, but after 25 years, it came back to you. And if your publisher, your label, or your studio wanted to keep your work in print or uh, in circulation, they would have to come to you and offer you a new bargain. Now, that was eventually watered down to a 35-year uh, copyright termination right, and it was a right, not an automatic process. You have to fill in extremely onerous paperwork in order to get your copyrights back. And I'm a volunteer on the advisory board of an organization called the Authors Alliance. And if you visit our website at authorsalliance.org, you'll find some tools to make it easier to terminate your copyright transfers. And all kinds of artists have used this to redress the bargaining imbalances when they began their careers. Um, if you've bought a Sweet Valley High book or a, a Babysitter's Club book for a young person in your life lately, you've been paying the author directly because those two women both terminated their copyright licenses to their original publishers. Uh, Stephen King's first half dozen novels were all terminated and, and resold. And, and then my favorite example here is George Clinton, the incredible uh, funk pioneer who uh, it, many years ago had his copyrights stolen. He had an unscrupulous manager who forged his signature on a copyright assignment and then used the royalties from that fraudulent copyright assignment to defend himself against George Clinton in court for decades in a case that ground on and on and on until George Clinton finally said, all right, let's say that it was a good copyright transfer. I'm going to terminate it. I want my copyrights back. Here we go. And now George Clinton is, uh, is, is able to, to pay his bills. You know, the reason that George Clinton is still touring in his 70s is not just because he's an unstoppable funk god. It's because he was broke. And so now he's got some choices and he can be the master of his own destiny. So that kind of uh, right, a copyright termination right, is a really big deal. Likewise, in the Digital Single Markets Directive, where we got that disastrous filter mandate, we also got a spectacular um, uh, transparency mandate that says that as a feature of copyright law, 
uh, the intermediaries, the, the booksellers and, and record labels and so on, they're required to uh, give a detailed accounting to the creators whose works they're selling, explaining exactly how much money those works are making and how their share of that money is being calculated so that they can spot the accounting tricks in advance. Those are some very uh, powerful ways to undo some of these choke points, or at least, as you said, kind of crowbar them into opening further. Um, I'd love to ask you about a few of the other uh, solutions proposed in the book. Uh, for example, can you tell us about ComCom and how we can get it? Yeah, this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and it's very central to the work I do with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. So uh, interoperability is this latent feature of all of our computers. The only computer we know how to make is the Turing Complete von Neumann machine, which is to say it's a computer that can run every program we know how to write. And so that means that anytime you have an incompatibility between two programs or services, for example, the you, you can't send messages using Twitter to people on Facebook, it's not because um, there is a technical impossibility there. It's because the makers of that product have chosen not to offer that feature. Now, historically, new market entrants, small firms that were trailing big ones, use this interoperability to their advantage. So when, when I was a, a CIO for hire, I had uh, clients who would have, say, 100 PCs and a couple of Macs uh, used by their design team. And they had a real problem, which was that Microsoft Office for the Mac was a very, very bad piece of software that really didn't work. And so that meant that their designers couldn't communicate with their colleagues. We ended up putting a PC on the desk of those designers so they could get Word files and Excel files and PowerPoint files. And when that became too unwieldy, we just threw away the Macs and put big graphics cards in those computers. Now, the way Apple addressed that was by um, having their engineers uh, uh, study the way that Microsoft Office worked, reverse engineer its file formats, and make the iWork suite, which is pages, numbers, and Keynote, which can read and write Microsoft Office files perfectly. And so that meant that Mac could the Mac could come back. If you were to do that to Apple today, say you were to offer your own app store for iOS, where Apple didn't get to take 30% of your creative wages as a condition of having your work in the app store. And if there was an iOS, uh, an iOS owner, an iPhone or iPad owner who wanted to buy your creative work from you, uh, they could do it directly with you without paying Apple their, this, this enormous share that they take from it. Um, Apple would reduce you to radioactive rubble. They would use features of copyright law, patent law, uh, contract law, non-disclosure, and so on to come after you and, and, and destroy your business. It's something they've already done and something they will do again. That's likewise true of Google, Facebook, and all the other firms. They all have in their history a moment at which they were using this these guerrilla tactics, scraping, bots, uh, reverse engineering. And, and we call that competitive compatibility at the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, or ComCom for short. We used to call it adversarial interoperability, but that's a, a real mouthful. And, and some of the people who are most interested in it are Germans who really struggle to say it. Uh, and, and also, it, does, it shortens down to AI, which is a term that's already taken. So we said competitive compatibility or ComCom. There's also um, interoperability mandates. So in the European Union, the Digital Markets Act requires large firms to start offering APIs, which are gateways that other firms can use to connect to their services. So you may eventually be able to quit Facebook 
join another service, one that doesn't spy on you, and continue to send messages and, and uh, participate in communities with the people who stay behind on Facebook. And since so many of us stay behind on these services, not because we like the services, but because we like the people who are there and it, the, the, the um, coordination problem of figuring out how to get them all to quit and go somewhere else all at once is so transcendentally hard that we uh, endure the bad service to get the, the access to the people we love. And so the Digital Markets Act might fix that. Likewise, in the, in the United States, there's the Access Act, which is still pending. And I'm, I'm as we speak, uh, packing a suitcase to fly to Washington, D.C. for an event where uh, Congress and senators and attorneys general are going to be. And we are going to exhort them to pass these bills in what's called the lame duck session, which is the session between the election and the swearing in of the new Congress. So that actually brings me um, very nicely to sort of my next question, which is where and how do you think collective action, obviously you've spoken already about the individual is probably not the starting point, um, but where can collective action hold promise for opening up these choke points? Well, collective action, I think, is a necessary condition for this, because even if uh, Congress or Parliament or the European Parliament is contemplating a course of action, they're going to get bigfooted by these incredibly powerful, concentrated corporate lobbies. And you need some countervailing power. You need worker power to, to overwhelm that uh, corporate power. And the way that we get that is through things like unions and guilds. Uh, in our book, we tell a couple of really good and inspiring stories about unions. One is the story of the Writers Guild in, in the United States, in Hollywood, which is the, the screenwriters uh, who write the, all the television that has been part of the golden age of TV over the last decade or so, where the uh, revenues from television have increased and increased and increased, and the share of money going to the writers has decreased monotonically every year. And the reason for that is that the agencies, the talent agencies that had the choke point between film and TV studios and screenwriters were concentrated. Private equity funds bought them all up and merged them until there were only four left, two of them run by private equity funds and two that merged defensively because of the other ones run by private equity funds. And these firms all adopted uh, a policy of, of packaging, which is when they go to the studios and they say, we're going to give you a writer and a star and a director all as a package. And we are, you're going to pay us a fee separate from the commission we earn from those creators labor in, in the product that's actually eventually made. And what ended up happening is these packaging fees ended up swallowing something like 90% of the money go, that would have otherwise gone to the writers. So the writers had the same commission that they'd always gotten, but um, the, income that was being paid to them was was just a, a small slice of what was being generated overall by their agents. And the agencies began to build their own studios so that they could negotiate with themselves on behalf of the creators who were providing the, the work that uh, generated these profits. And so on one day, all 7,000 members of the Writers Guild fired their agents. And then they ground out a 22-month strike. And the agencies uh, said that there was no way that they would uh, cave on this matter, that they would stop using these packaging fees, that they would stop trying to build their own studios. In particular, the private equity uh, run ones really couldn't because part of the private equity playbook is to load up their acquisitions with tons of debt. So when private equity firms buy a firm, they, uh, they borrow a lot of money against its future earnings and trouser that money. And the only way those firms can become profitable 
is if they can service that debt by finding lots of new ways to make money. And, and one of the primary ways of doing that is by cutting their wage bill, by, by eroding their workers' power. It's one of the reasons private equity has been so uh, catastrophic in every industry that it's entered. Excuse me one sec. So um, the, the uh, private equity-backed studios said that there was, there was no way that they would ever cave, but after 22 months, even they caved. And David Goodman, who led that strike for the Writers Guild, who was the president of the Guild at the time, he was our interlocutor at our launch in Beverly Hills on the U.S. launch day in September. And he told us, we thought these agencies were so powerful because the only way we ever got work was through them. They were the only way that we could reach the studios. But we realized that they only had the power that we gave them, that we gave them individually as atomized individuals. You know, you can make a TV show without agents, but you can't make a TV show without writers. And once we realized that, once we took our power back, we all started getting paid again. So we, we tell that story. And then we tell a story of a very different group of writers, uh, of, of uh, workers, workers who are in much worse shape, uh, the Uber drivers of California. So in California, Uber requires its drivers to click through an agreement uh, that uh, requires binding arbitration. That means that if you are uh, stolen from by Uber and you want to sue them to recover your lost wages, you can't bring your, your, your action in a court. You have to go in front of a corporate arbitrator who's a fake judge whom Uber pays. And that corporate arbitrator decides whether Uber is guilty. And if they are, they hand out an award to you. Now, uh, it's, it's very clear from the research that judges who work for one of the parties pay uh, uh, or find an, in favor of that party more often than judges who don't. I think that shouldn't surprise anyone. Um, but uh, it's also the fact that these cases are non, uh, non-precedentary. So when you, when you go and you win some money from Uber, the next driver who comes along can't use your case as a precedent. And they don't allow for class actions. So all the drivers can't get together and sue Uber as a group. So the drivers worked with a law firm and they figured out how to automate arbitration claims so that they could file thousands of them in one day. Uber then realized that they were going to have to pay each of these arbitrators thousands of dollars just to hear the case, even if they won. They were going to have to pay the arbitrators fees because that's part of the contract. And Uber found itself in the very bizarre position of going in front of a judge and saying, your honor, what kind of reasonable person would think that this ridiculous arbitration clause should possibly be enforced? This is so unfair. And the judge wasn't having any of it. And in the end, they had to pay the drivers $150 million. These are the most atomized workers in our society. They don't even have a break room where they meet each other. They don't know each other's names. They found each other on Reddit and on other forums. They organized and they got $150 million out of one of the largest companies in the world. So that's where collective action starts. But the lesson of of Uber and the screenwriters is that there are lots of workers who are situated in bad circumstances because of corporate concentration. And it's through collective action across sectors that will really make a difference. Because binding arbitration is in lots of writers' contracts and uh, filmmakers' contracts and musicians' contracts as well. And so what we really need to do is not just score this one win for Uber drivers, we need to make binding arbitration non-enforceable. And the way that we do it is by joining forces across all the different sectors where workers are victimized by these unfair contracting terms and declare those contracting terms to be unconscionable and unenforceable. There's a a colleague of ours named James Boyle. He's a Scottish copyright uh, expert, teaches at Duke University, where he runs the Center for the Public Domain with uh, Jennifer Jenkins. And, And Jamie, he has this parable about the history of the ecology movement. 
He says before the term ecology was coined, people didn't know that they were on the same side. You know, you care about owls, I care about the ozone layer. What do birds have to do with the atmosphere? How is your charismatic nocturnal avian related to the gaseous composition of the sky? The term ecology turns a thousand issues into a movement. And when we understand that excessive corporate power is the common threat to all workers, and that pluralism is the is the uh, uh, cause that we can rally behind, that we can have solidarity for, that's when we'll make a movement that's big enough to really make significant changes. Those are some really fascinating and hopefully for many inspiring examples. So thank you for explaining them to us. Um, as my final question, this is a I'm sort of curious what the answer is, um, because obviously this is something that you have worked on for a very long time, this topic in general, and Rebecca as well. Um, but was there anything in the process of researching or writing the book that was a surprise to either or both of you? Oh, I think it was the depravity of the scams. You know, the longer we looked at it, the worse they got. Like we all know that before uh, the Napster era, when the record labels suddenly decided that they needed to clean up their acts because musicians were leaving for YouTube and, and other streaming services, we all know that the deal used to be really, really bad. Um, but we didn't know how bad. For example, we found child recording artists who signed contracts when they were when they were under 18 for, say, 15, 20 records over the next 20 some years. And those contracts require that their parents agree not to move the family out of state. We found out that the Beatles had uh, been uh, given one penny per record, but that 15% of that penny was taken out for marketing expenses. They split the remaining 85% of a penny four ways, but not until they paid their manager his 10%. Um, and, and, you know, this carried on into the modern era uh, in, in record label contracts. It became standard long after most music sales were digital to have this uh, breakage line item on royalty statements. Breakage is a, a share of your royalties that were historically deducted to pay for the shellac records that were broken in the lorry between the warehouse and the high street. And this was being taken out of people's MP3 royalties, where there was no record to break. When we looked at the contracts from the tech companies, we saw it, the same abuses just updated for the modern age. So um, uh, Audible, for example, was clawing back uh, money from each of its authors. They would say to the listeners who had a subscription to Audible and were paying a flat rate every month, they were saying to, to them, hey, um, that audiobook that you just listened to, that you might have listened to four times, that you might have finished listening to six months ago, if you're unsatisfied with it for any reason, you can return it for full credit. And then you can get more value out of your subscription and not leave Audible for one of the rival services that kept popping up. And then whenever that happened, they would turn around to those audiobook authors and they would take the money back out of their royalty statement. And um, we had authors who were earning negative income on the books that they themselves had financed to sell on Amazon's platform and that Amazon required them to promise to only sell on Amazon's platform for seven years after the release date. So wherever we looked, we, we, you know, we saw depravity that was beyond our wildest dreams. You know, I write dystopian science fiction novels. And, and this made me go like, you know, guys, the stuff that we write in these novels, it's not a suggestion, it's a warning. Hmm. Yeah, those there were definitely some pretty shocking examples. Um, I'm glad that it was not just me as a reader that was 
horrified really by quite a lot of the um, examples. Um, so I would definitely point readers to the book itself. Obviously, there's a lot more detail in there. Um, and thank you, Corey, very much for your time. Um, Rebecca, obviously, for her work as well on the book. And to listeners, the book is titled Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. So thank you again for listening. Um, and Corey, again, for your insight and expertise. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us on. <laughs>